go ahead and tell you uh, this, this particular sermon is one that I, I know for a fact the enemy does not want you to hear. Uh, I, I usually know when these things happen is because I go to bed at night early enough, tired, and I just can't sleep. No reason for it. Happens periodically. I just lay in bed and I, my body refuses to fall asleep. And I can almost always guarantee the reason why is because the enemy wants me to be exhausted by the time I come into the pulpit because he thinks that making me exhausted will keep me from declaring God's truth to you and somehow you won't hear it. But here's what I love about our God. He has this uncanny ability to make Satan's plans backfire in his face. So two things are going to happen today. One, you're going to listen because you know the enemy's trying to keep you from listening. And two, I'm going to preach with more passion than ever because I know God has a message to deliver to you that will change you. He wants to teach you something that now I know Satan, Satan is scared to death for you to receive. The interesting thing about the message this morning is it is all about how we overcome the attacks of the enemy. It's just too perfectly timed. These times where Satan makes these mistakes, too perfectly timed for him to do what he did for me not to realize that God wants to deliver a message to you, and I'm going to have the privilege of delivering that to you, to teach you what you desperately need, how to have a life of victory and power, and how to overcome the obstacles the enemy keeps throwing at you. That's exactly what I'm going to give you today. There are some of you right now in this room, some of you watching online, and your, your life feels like anything except powerful. It doesn't feel like you have victory in your life. It doesn't feel like you can overcome. It doesn't feel like your faith is actually accomplishing anything in your life. There are some of you in this room right now, some of you watching online, and you are on the verge of abandoning your faith because you're going, it just doesn't seem to be working. Nothing seems to be changing right now. I pray, and nothing seems to happen. I go to church and I don't get any better. I keep falling into the same sins. I'm good for a little bit and then boom, I just fall right off again. I, I, can't, stay, I can't stay on the straight and narrow. I can't walk with God. Apparently this faith thing has no power in my life. But every once in a while, you find somebody and their life just seems to be different. I bet you every single one of you could point to somebody and you're saying, when I grow up, I want to be just like them. And you might, you might already be in your 50s, but you're saying, when I grow up, I want to be just like them. Because there's something about that person that they just seem different. When they pray, it just seems like God answers. These people have miracle stories to tell. Like the average person maybe has one. They seem to have dozens and dozens of stories of how they've seen God move. You can look at their life and you know it's not easy, but at the same time you see them have peace that surpasses understanding. You see joy even in the middle of hard circumstances. And you're saying, I want that. I, I want to have a faith like them. I, I want to be strong like them. And your question you'll ask is, what do they have that I don't have? Why does their faith seem to work for them, but it doesn't work for me? Listen, I, I believe there are a lot of you this morning who are asking yourself that question, but it's the wrong question. The wrong question is, what do they have that I don't have? But the right question is, what have they been willing to give up that I, I have not been willing to give up? That's the real question. So I'm gonna give you a principle right here. You should probably write this down because I think it could really change you. Simple but meaningful. Here's what it is. You get out of the faith what you put into the faith. It's like investment principle, basic investment. The more you invest in the faith, the more you get out of the faith. If you put all of yourself into the faith, your faith in Christ, you see the power of God in every area of your life. But when you begin to hold sections back, then you miss the power of God. The reason why you look at some people and their lives seem to have more powers than yours is because they've given more of themselves to God than you have. That's the big difference between the two. 
Just last night I was reading, I had not planned to share this, but last night I was reading a, a, a quote from C.S. Lewis, and it said, he cannot bless us unless he has us. When we try to keep within us an area that is our own, we try to keep an area of death. Therefore, in love, he claims all. There's no bargaining with God. That's it right there. Every time we try to hold an area back, we are holding back an area of death. God says, I don't let you hold anything back because I want to give life into every area of your existence. There is no bargaining with God. One of the chief ways Satan comes against us is he tries to get us to compromise in our faith. Compromise is just us holding back. Think about what a compromise is. Compromise is, okay, I'll, I'll keep this, but I'll give you that. That's great between siblings. Just, just yesterday, I'm talking to a couple of my kids. Like, okay, we've got to come up to a compromise here. Let's find a, a way for you both to get what you want. Compromise is great between siblings. It is not great between you and God. We don't get to bargain and compromise with God and say, okay, God, I'm going to hold this back right here, but I'll give you that. See, that's us trying to find what's the bare minimum I've got to give to God to make him happy. There's no bargaining with God because everything we hold back is just a place of death, and he knows it. The people that you see who experience power in their lives are those who give themselves entirely to the Lord. These are the heroes of the faith. We read about them in the Bible. One of the greatest heroes of the faith is a man named Moses. We talk about him 3,000 years later because he was a man who had zero compromise in his faith. In fact, this morning, we're going to read a story about him, and we're going to see how he was tempted to compromise and how he refused and why his life had power. And we're going to learn how to live in the same kind of victory and power that Moses did. Exodus chapter 8 is where we're going to be jumping in halfway through. Open your Bible, if you will. Those of you who are guests, second book of the Bible, you got Genesis and Exodus chapter 8. We're going to start in a moment in verse 16. But every Sunday we have guests who are with us or watching online, so let me give you a recap. won't take long, but I want to make sure we're all caught up. So you have the Hebrew people, the, the Israelites, and they're slaves in the land of Egypt. And God has raised up Moses to go liberate them. So he's supposed to go before Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, let the people of God go so they can worship Yahweh. And Pharaoh, as you know, refuses, says, I'm not going to let you go. And so God brings upon some plagues over Pharaoh. There are going to be 10 of them. We've covered two so far. A few weeks ago, we looked at how they turned, Moses and Aaron turned the Nile River into blood. And then last week, we talked about the plague of frogs that came upon them. This week, we're going to move on into the third and fourth plagues. And we're going to learn even more about what God is after in these plagues and how he's, trying to sh how he's trying to prove to us he is the only one to be trusted. So with that in mind, let's jump into the third plague, the plague of gnats, beginning in verse 16. Here's what it says. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Okay, so this is the shortest of all the ten plagues. Just a few little verses right here that describe this plague of gnats. And, but the, it's the shortest one for sure, but it is one of the most potent when you understand what's really going on. So, like I mentioned last week with the plague of frogs, sometimes we look at these plagues and we miss the severity of them. So when you think about a plague of gnats, the first thing you think about is a swarm of gnats, like around you that you're going to kind of like, you know, get, get away from me. You've walked, you've walked into a swarm of gnats before, I'm certain. And it's super annoying, but it's not deadly. Like maybe you choke one down, but you're not going to die, a little extra protein, you'll be all right. 
but it's, it's annoying, not deadly. And you're going, okay, what's the, of all the things, like why not a plague of lions that come in and devour people? Why a plague of gnats? And it's really understanding what that word means that gives you some of the gravity to it. So most scholars believe it's not referring to the normal gnat that you and I would think of. Uh, that word is very, fairly ambiguous in the Hebrew. But because it says that they were, in verse 18, that they were on man and beast, most scholars believe that it was actually much worse. More than likely, it was at worst, or at, at best, it was mosquitoes. At worst, it was fleas or lice. A plague of fleas or lice. Yeah, so I'm going, mess you up thinking about that. There, there was a, a historian in the first century AD, a guy named Philo of Alexandria, and he's, he's a Jewish historian writing about the plagues, and he says this 2,000 years ago. He describes these insects, whatever they are, as the kind of insects that would crawl up in your nose and nest in your ears. Ah! Like, that's a whole lot worse than little pesky gnats going by. These were terrible to the point that the magicians are freaking out a bit. Interesting little side bit about this particular plague. This is the first one that the magicians cannot recreate. If you've been tracking along, you know there was a sign that was originally done early on in chapter 7 where Aaron threw down his staff and it turned into a snake. And then it says the Egyptian magicians were able to recreate it. They threw down their staffs and they became snakes. They did it by their secret arts. And then... Right after that, you had the first plague, the plague of turning the Nile River into blood, and it says that the magicians, by their secret arts, were able to turn water into blood. I don't know how, but they were able to do it. And then the plague of frogs that we looked at last week, it says that they brought frogs out of the water, and it says the magicians were able to bring frogs out of the water. So, so far, they're three for three, producing these exact, exact same miracles, until you get to the plague of gnats. And for the first time, it says the magicians were not able to recreate this miracle. Now, i, I got to be honest with you. I, I don't fully know. I can't tell you with complete certainty exactly what's going on, how they've been able to recreate the initial, the, the sign in the first two plagues. But I believe, because of the terminology in Hebrew, that this is a representation of demonic power. The main reason I believe it is because the word that's translated in the ESV as secret arts also means enchantments or the occult. So as I'm reading that, I'm thinking, okay, the occult. It's talking about demonic forces. If you ever want to read more about that, go to Ephesians chapter 6. Talk about the war we have with demonic forces, the powers and principalities. Real forces that have real power that can do things beyond what humans can do. And so I believe demonic forces are making these happen. And so what this is showing us is that there is a genuine power, but a limited power that Satan has on earth. That's exceptionally important. I told you from the very first sermon of this, back in Exodus chapter 1, that the real power behind Pharaoh was the devil. He was trying to keep God's people from receiving God's blessings because he didn't want them praising God. He wanted the praise for himself. So Satan's the real power behind Pharaoh. So it makes sense that the demonic forces are the power behind these Egyptian gods. And what God is showing us when the magicians are not able to recreate this is, yes, they have power, but they're two out of ten. That's the only, the only two plagues they can recreate are the first two. The, the next eight they cannot recreate. Satan has power, but his power is limited. Go read your Bible. Read about the devil, and you'll see how many times it mentions his limited power. He can do nothing without first getting permission from the Father. He is controlled by that because he can only accomplish God's purposes even if he doesn't realize he's doing it. Think about the cross, murdering the Son of God. He has power to do that, but he doesn't realize that's all of the Father's plan. He only has power that's been given to him by God. His power is limited. 
It's super important that we understand that because it controls the way we view our personal battle with Satan. You see, the, the whole point of these plagues, I want to mention it again and again, is God showing that he has power over the demonic. So each one of the, the Egyptian gods and goddesses, I believe, were controlled by demonic forces, trying to persuade people to abandon their true God and to go after false gods. The scriptures talk about idols being demons, the demonic forces behind them. And every single one of these plagues has some kind of idol or Egyptian god or goddess, some kind of demonic force behind it, and this one is no different. Now, you don't always know for certain which Egyptian god or goddess is being dealt with, but most believe that this is the Egyptian god Geb. He was the god of the earth. He was the one who was supposed to bring forth the, the, the earth and the, its produce, that the soil that would bring forth livelihood and life to the Egyptian people closely partnered with the Nile that would water the earth and Geb would bring forth sustenance. And here you have another showdown between God and a demonic force. And here God says, let me show you. There is no true God named Geb. You think the earth is gonna produce for you? The earth is actually gonna attack you because it says the dust turns into these gnats or into this lice, or into these mosquitoes, or into these fleas, whatever it is, the very earth turns against them. And he says, these demons will turn against you too. I'm the true power, not these forces. It was God showing his power over the demonic. And the Egyptians saw it. They realized for the first time they could not cre recreate it, and they realized they are going toe-to-toe -to -toe with someone greater than another magician. I, I believe that up to this point, the reason they say in verse 19, this is the finger of God, is because they realized for the first time that they're not battling with two other magicians. I, I think before this moment, they thought they were just a couple of Egyptian magicians battling with a couple of Hebrew magicians who could produce the, the greatest show. And for the first time, they see Moses and Aaron and they produce something they can't and they realize, oh dang, these guys aren't just a bunch of magicians, they have a divine power behind them. And that's when they shout out to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. It's not just some Egyptian trick or it's not some magician's work over here some kind of occult practice that's God right there at work which is interesting because you would think that with this kind of declaration that Pharaoh would wake up and go okay ooh, I better back off my own magician to see God and yet it says that in response to their word he hardened his heart you go okay why in the world would he harden his heart realizing his own magicians are seeing God in this now the answer to that is so important the reason why Pharaoh hardened his heart is because his magicians hadn't come to faith in Yahweh God, they just only recognized they were outwitted and outmatched. You, you, you see it in the terminology. This is where uh, sometimes it helps to be able to read the original language. So it says that they said, this is the finger of God. The Hebrew word they use for God is Elohim. It was kind of a common name for God. It's actually a plural term. can be translated as the gods. Now when it's used with a singular verb, you know it's talking about the true God, Yahweh God. Elohim, one God, but when it doesn't have, when it has a plural verb or when it doesn't, it's ambiguous, it could just be referring to the gods. And so it's very simple to see the magicians aren't saying this is the finger of Yahweh, they're saying this is the finger of the gods. In other words, this is a divine power. There's another power at work. They're not coming to humble recognition of Yahweh. They're just recognizing the power has got more power than they have. There's some divine entity at work. Now, let me tell you why that matters. It is not enough to believe that there is a divine power. It is not enough to have some kind of ambiguous idea of God. It's not even enough to believe that Jesus is real. 
There comes a moment when that kind of ambiguity will destroy your faith, not build it. You, you do realize this. I, I hope you understand this. Even the demons believe in God, and they believe Jesus is real, and they shudder. But they do not know him personally, nor do they bow down to him. If you believe in God, but you do not know him personally, and you have not bowed down to him, that makes you maybe agnostic instead of atheist. Atheist believes there's no God. Agnostic believes there is a God, they just don't know him. Being agnostic does not give you the power of Almighty God in your life. But I hear so many people talk about God in these generic terms, like the big man upstairs. When they pray, they pray this way. God, I don't know if you're up there or not, but if you can, I need some help. These ambiguous terms, and we think because we believe there's a God, because we have warm feelings about Jesus, we believe Jesus is real, we think it's going to be enough. But what you're seeing in this passage is these magicians believed in a God or the gods, but it was not enough to get them to change, and it certainly wasn't enough for Pharaoh, and it will not be enough for us. Our God wants to be known on a personal level. His whole point was not for them to recognize the finger of Elohim. It was for them to recognize the finger of Yahweh. In fact, six out of the ten plagues, it says over and over, this plague is coming so that you may know that I am Yahweh. The plague of frogs was so that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. Now, it, it says the word Lord, but you'll see the caps L-O-R-D. When all four letters are capitalized, that's the name Yahweh, the personal name. And you're going to see that very thing as we keep on reading. When you move into the fourth plague, the whole point of it was so that Egypt and Pharaoh would not just know about this generic God, but would recognize Yahweh. Let's keep on reading the next plague and see what he's saying. Chapter 8, verse 20. It says, then the Lord, again, that's the name Yahweh. Then Yahweh said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says Yahweh, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined by the swarms of flies. I don't know if you caught it back in verse 22, but he says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this distinction between Goshen and the land of Egypt. He says, so that you may know that I, Yahweh, am in the midst of my people. Why? I want you to know Yahweh, not Elohim, this generic God, but Yahweh. I want you to know who I am. Listen, I, I think this next plague is another one that you so easily miss. Your, your whole life, if you've read the story before, you think about a swarm of flies and you think little house flies. It's a lot like the gnats. You, you get annoyed by them. You might get a fly swatter and try to kill them. They bother you. They gross you out, but they don't hurt you. That's, that's not what he's talking about. Most, most scholars believe that this is not referring to house flies because of verse 24 when it says that the land was ruined by them. That Hebrew word for ruined means annihilated, utterly decimated by them. If it were just common house flies, the land would not have been decimated by them on the land. Most believe this is referring to a different type of flying thing. In fact, the actual Hebrew term doesn't say swarms of flies. It just says swarms. It, it leaves it open. Flying creatures that swarm. 
There are many historians who believe that the flying creature was actually a scarab. It's a beetle. Very common in Egyptian lore. If you look back at a lot of Egyptian imagery, you'll see beetles all over the place in their jewelry, on their walls. And the reason why is they, they thought these scarabs brought good luck. They, they actually saw them as signs of the resurrection. In fact, there was the chief of the, the scarabs, the beetles. His name was Kepri, and he was the god of resurrection. In fact, we have an image of him. I want to put that up there. So this is Kepri, and you can see him. He's got the body of a man, but the face of a scarab, a beetle. And the reason that he was there is, as the God of resurrection was because he was the one who was thought to take what was dead and use it for good to bring about life. And here's the reason why. Be- because of what beetles did. Now, I'm going to gross you out a little bit here, but you've got to understand how beetles work. Maybe you've heard of a dung beetle. Dung beetles, they take what has been discarded, dead from a, a living being. They begin to roll it up until it makes a ball, and then they bury that ball. They plant their eggs right next to it, And these eggs begin to feed on that little ball of what was dead, and they come to life. And so when Egyptians look at these beetles, they see them take what was dead and bring out life from it, and they go, resurrection. And so you have Kepri, the god of resurrection, and he's the one who's supposed to take care of all that's dead and bring it back to life. Now they've had this Nile plague with blood. They've had these frogs plaguing everything. They have gnats, which is lice or fleas or something, plaguing everything. And now they're going to turn to Kepri to help them out and these beetles to help them out. And God says, oh, you think beetles are going to help you out? Let me go ahead and send a swarm of scarabs against you. And you're going to see that these things that you think will bring you life can only bring you death. Why? Because that that God has no power whatsoever. That beetle has no power. I'm Yahweh. I'm the true God. In fact, he puts an exclamation point on this miracle by doing something for the first time, making a distinction. I don't know if you saw it. Between the land of Goshen and the land of Egypt. You're going, what's Goshen? Goshen is the place. That's where the Hebrews lived. It was this beautiful, lush piece of land where they could shepherd their sheep. It it was on the eastern side side of the, the delta of the Nile River. Beautiful, lush area right in the heart of Egypt. And so, so think about what this miracle looks like, because it's a double miracle. Not only did God bring scarabs, but he actually created this barrier in the land of Goshen that's right in the middle of Egypt that every Egyptian would have been able to see. You could be walking through Egypt, and there's just these big old scarabs, these beetles everywhere, eating the land, devouring everything, and then you walk right through, and here in Goshen, there's not a single scarab to be found. The land is pristine, no mistake whatsoever. Like a wall of beetles just stops and no one touches Goshen. And he wanted every single Egyptian to see the true power. You think Kepri will bring you resurrection? Let me go ahead and tell you, I'm the only one who can bring life. I protect my people. I plague my enemies. Know who I am. That's what this miracle is trying to say. He's trying to show Egypt, Pharaoh, and all the demonic powers that he can take them any old day in a Wild West shootout. In fact, the terminology he uses, it's so powerful, but you miss it in the English translations. This is the biggest struggle point you have sometimes by trying to switch between languages. But there's something that takes place that you don't see in English that you do in Hebrew. It was back in the beginning when it says uh, that you're supposed to go before Pharaoh and say this, thus says Yahweh. And what the English translation says, send my people out that they may worship me. And if you don't let them go, then I will send swarms of flies against you. So the the English says, let my people go, and if you don't let them go, then I will send them to you. So it looks like two different verbs, go, go, send. But actually, in Hebrew, it's the same verb all three times. 
It's the Hebrew verb shalach, which means to send. So literally, if you're translating those verses 20 and 21 and 22, it says, God goes, he, he sends Moses to Pharaoh, and he says, thus says Yahweh, I want you to send my people away, Pharaoh, and if you don't send my people away, I'm going to send this plague of swarms against you. Send, send, send. And you're going, okay, thanks for the grammar, grammar lesson, Jason, but who cares? The same verb. Okay, what, what does that mean? Let me tell you exactly what it means. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and bring it down to today and how it would go down if you're really trying to translate the meaning of it. Basically, God is going up to Pharaoh, and he says, all right, listen up, Pharaoh. Here's what's going to happen. Someone's going to do some shalachim today. It's either going to be you or it's going to be me. So go ahead and make it easy on yourself and shalach my people out to worship me, or I'm about to shalach some beetles all up in your business. You choose. The terminology is intended to be confrontational. Someone's going to shalach, someone's going to send, and either you're going to make it easy on yourself and you're going to do what I tell you to do, or I'm going to show you who I am. It was intended to be a cosmic showdown so we would know who the true power is. But that Pharaoh, his skull is so thick, he goes, ah, I'm not scared of you. And what does God do? God sends the swarm, the scarabs upon the land, and now here is Pharaoh in verse 24, and he's looking out over his beautiful Egypt, and it has been annihilated, ravaged. And now, finally, Pharaoh's able to make, he's, he's ready to make a deal. He's going, okay, uncle, come, come back over here, Moses. I want to talk to you now. And we read the rest of the passage, verses 25 to the end of the chapter. Listen to the deal that Pharaoh is ready to make. Verse 25, it says, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go to sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Same song, second verse. He gets relief. Hardens his heart and says, I'm not going to let you go. But I want you to notice what Pharaoh is doing here. He's trying to make a deal with Moses. He's now recognizing the power of Moses' God, Yahweh. He refuses to call him Yahweh. He calls him Elohim again, God. He says, all right, go to your God and, and, and see if you could go sacrifice to him. Just don't leave the land. He's trying to make a compromise. Okay, here, here's the deal. I, I'll let you go do it. You just, I don't want you to go too far away. And Moses says, no deal. And then Pharaoh comes back a second time, says, fine, 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 fine. I'll let you go to the wilderness, but I'm not going to let you go three days journey. You go right to the edge of the wilderness. You can go over there, but don't go any further. It's this back and forth pleading that he's trying to do. Because what Pharaoh is trying to do is see, what's the least I have to do to get this guy Moses and his God off my back? What's the least I have to offer how far do I have to go? What little can I do before he finally stops messing with me? He's trying to get Moses to make a compromise. Now, you and I know 
that if Moses had made a compromise, he would have missed all the power of God. But Moses didn't know that at the time. And you got to understand how sweet of a deal this would have been for Moses. You remember the story. Hopefully, those of you who have been tracking along, he has been, he's been just shoved through the ringer at this point. Moses has had Pharaoh make fun of him. His own people turn against him. He's had the magicians replicate some of these miracles over and over. He's had a rough go at it. And there are times, I'm sure, in fact, we, we've read about it, where he's going, stop it. Like, why'd you even send me, God? This is too much for me. And now for the first time, you see, you see Pharaoh ready to make a deal with Moses. Now, there had to be a side of Moses where he's going, mm, that's a pretty good offer. That's not all we want, but he's letting us go sacrifice to our God. And listen, this may be the best deal we get. I don't know. This is the best one he's given so far. It might not get any better. We should probably take it. He would have been really easy for Moses to begin to rationalize. I mean, I mean, really, like what's the most important thing, Aaron? It's that we worship God, right? And doesn't matter where you worship God just matters your heart so yeah maybe we'll be in Egypt and worship it'll be okay or or just right on the edge of the wilderness maybe we won't go three full days but we'll still get to worship him I mean isn't that all that matters he could begin to rationalize this thing away Pharaoh might actually protect us be on our side things might work out better for us if we do this and yet Moses absolutely refuses he says no deal and it's because he chose not to compromise that he saw all the miracles of God flow in after that. If he had chosen to compromise, he never would have seen the other six miracles, never would have seen the death of the firstborn, never would have seen the power of the blood of the lamb to, to pass over the home of those who were in him, never would have seen the parting of the Red Sea. None of that would have happened had he chosen to compromise. But Moses, because of his faith in God, said, no deal. Pharaoh tried to get him to compromise, and he said, absolutely not. Here's why you need to hear this. Satan is working his tell-off to get you to compromise. And he's trying to give you a better offer. And he's trying to come after your faith because he knows if you don't compromise, then you are a threat to his kingdom. He knows that you will have power, you will have victory, you will have freedom, and he doesn't want you to have it. And so he comes in with these little bitty lies. And he starts super small. He starts compromising. Look, you know, you... You don't need to go to church every week. I mean, it doesn't matter where you worship or when you worship. Maybe it's a, in your car just listening to a sermon. That's all you do. You don't need to gather with God's people. He's trying to get you to compromise because he knows how badly you need God's people. And he's saying, I want you to be with God's people. God is saying, you need to be with God's people. The enemy's going, do, do you really have to do that? He's trying to get you to compromise. Oh, they come to that offering time every week and they talk about this tithe, giving 10 Who can give 10% of their income to the church? Only rich people can do that. And God knows I have my financial needs and so I'll, you know, I'll make sure I make my needs met first and then if I have a little bit left over, I'll give it to the Lord. You know what that is? That's compromise. I'll keep my part. I'll give you God what I have left over. Satan doesn't want you to trust because he doesn't want you to find the blessings of Almighty God so he wants to get you to compromise. Or, or with your eyes. He'll say, you know, look, man, I, I know you looked at pornography, but you're not sleeping around. I mean, like, that's way better. Now, God, he might be angry with you if you were sleeping around, but who are you hurting? It's just something you saw with your eyes. You didn't hurt anybody, and who else knows but you anyway? Just a little bit of compromise coming in that just makes it get worse and worse and worse. He wants to get us to compromise because he knows the moment we compromise, our faith loses all its power. 
And it's in that moment that you and I have to step up and look at Satan and say, no deal. I refuse to compromise. I refuse to hold anything back. I give it all to you. That's exactly what Moses was able to do. But don't forget why he was able to do it. Because he knew Yahweh. He didn't know this generic God out there who had some power. He knew Yahweh, the God of infinite power. He knew that his God could conquer Pharaoh. Pharaoh's trying to make a deal, but Moses is going, you ain't got no chips, Pharaoh. My God is holding all the chips. Why would I ever compromise to you? And God is trying to tell us the exact same thing. He's saying, why are you compromising with Satan? He's not holding any chips. I got all the chips. Trust me. You know, you and I, we know something that Moses didn't even know. We not only know that God is all powerful, but we know that God is all loving, and we know it through the cross of Jesus Christ. We go over to the New Testament, and we read about this gospel, that God loved us so much that he was willing to let his own son be tortured and murdered on a cross so our sins could be paid for. And then three days later, he rose up from the dead, showing he has all power. Not just all power, but all love and all power. We know more about God than Moses did, so why in the world would we ever compromise with an enemy who hates us and has limited power when we have a God who loves us and has infinite power? He wants to show us who he is, so we'll look Satan in the face and say, no deal. My God loves me, and he can care for me. He wants us to see that Satan, yes, he has a bark, but he's a little bitty chihuahua. He's on the other side of the door, he's scratching, and he's barking like he's real big. You open the door, and there he is. Chihuahuas, they can bite, and it annoys you, and then you kick the chihuahua, and the chihuahua runs away. Now, pit bull could be a different story. What the scripture's trying to show us in this is Satan is a little chihuahua. Yes, he's got a bite. Yes, he can come against us. Yes, he can bark really loudly. But his power is limited by God. He is, he's not going, it's not like Satan's going toe-to-toe with God. You're trying to figure out who's going to win. All the power that he has has been given to him by God. He is limited. He might bite us, but he cannot defeat us. And you and I who know the message of the cross, who know the message of the gospel, we look at Satan and we say, I refuse to be afraid by your bark. You will not have victory in my life. But that only comes by faith in God. Here's what I know for certain. Satan is scared to death of what God is doing right now in our church. We have for four and a half months now seen 192 people baptized in this church. In four and a half months. There is a legitimate revival taking place right here, right now among us unprecedented in our church. It's happened to a few churches that I know around the country and they're all churches right now that are focusing in on prayer and crying out to God. And the enemy is scared to death of it. I mentioned it last week, I sent a video out a week and a few days ago about it. I see the attack of the enemy. I see it in our our own lives. I see it in in sickness and exhaustion. I see it even in my own cars. We've got four cars and three of the four had a car battery need to be replaced in one week. This is crazy stuff going on. The enemy's trying to mess us up and do this. God keeps getting victory again and again, but he wants to discourage. He wouldn't let me sleep last night. The enemy wouldn't. He's trying to get me. He's got a loud bark. I can feel it. But I can look up and say, the enemy's got bark, but he will not overcome me. I have victory in Jesus Christ, and you do too. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have power over the enemy. He is coming against you. He is threatening you. He is barking. He has some power, but that power is limited. You do not have to give him more power than he has. 
And I think today you might need to respond to that. Because there are some of you in this room and you are living in unnecessary fear because of the bark of the enemy. And today he wants to, God wants to get victory in your life. He wants to remind you of the power that he has, but it only comes when you give him everything. You don't hold anything back. Listen, there are some of you in this room right now, and you are going through a really hard circumstance. If you would stop and look at your life, you can see that, uh, the attack of the enemy on you, on your family, maybe your health, maybe your finances, maybe something going on in a relationship. You can feel the attack of the enemy. And if, you're, if you were being honest with yourself, some of you would have to say, it's made me very afraid right now. I'm afraid that if I dig in more to my faith, if I try to serve God more, he might attack more and I'm scared. Right now what's going on is you're letting the enemy threaten you, dissuade you and discourage you with his bark. His power is limited. And yes, sometimes it can feel overwhelming, but God gets the victory. And so maybe what you need to do today is to look Satan in the face and say, I refuse to give you victory in my life today. This issue going on, I'm not gonna be afraid. I'm gonna take it before the Lord in prayer. And maybe what you need to do in a moment is come down to find one of us on the prayer team and let us pray over that situation in your life. Cry out to God and say, we are not gonna be afraid of what's going on in your life because we know God can handle that health issue, that financial issue, that relationship issue. Whatever that problem is, God can handle it. Satan can threaten, but God can take care of it. And maybe in a moment you need to have prayer to say, this is my step. This is where I show I refuse to be threatened by the enemy. In a moment, you're going to have a chance to do that. I believe there may be some of you who need to. But I also know this. There are some of you in this room. And God, the Spirit right now, is trying to work on you to show you where you have had places of compromise in your life. There are some of you here this morning, and you've compromised in your integrity, in your purity, in your walk, in your faith. There's some place where you knew the right thing to do, but you let fear or temptation or the whispers of the enemy cause you to do something else. Here's what I want you to know. Satan is trying to rob you of power by getting you to compromise, by getting you to say, okay, God, let's make a deal. I'll hold this back. I'll give you that. But you must stand up and say, no deal, Satan. No compromise. And when you have compromised, the good news of the gospel is you can go right back to the Lord and say, forgive me. Forgive me for compromising. Forgive me for trusting in the enemy instead of trusting in you, God. You can lay that failure down at the feet of Jesus and he will wipe it clean. And you can come back to the place of saying, I give you everything again. No more compromise. I now see what was going on. And I gave the enemy victory, but I don't give him victory anymore. And you can find power again in your life simply by repenting, by confessing it, giving it to the Lord. Maybe you need to do that today. These steps will be open for you. You can come bow down. You can just lay that at the feet of the Lord and say, I, I ask you to forgive me, Father. I trust you. Forgive me for my compromise. Forgive me for holding back. You've been asking me to do something and I've been holding back, unwilling to let go of that, unwilling to go where you're telling me to go. I've been trying to compromise with you. Forgive me. I give you everything. But the most important thing I want to say, I know there are some of you in this room and you're not experiencing the power of Almighty God in your life. And the reason why Satan's voice is so loud and so strong is because you have never said, I give you all of me. You thought that because you believe in God, because you believe in Jesus, that that's enough. But you have never come to the moment in your life where you said, Jesus, you can have every last bit of me. Forgive me for my rebellion against you. Forgive me for trying to take back what belongs to you. Today, I give every bit of it to you. 
Nothing held back. Save me. I was praying about this, and the Lord put this heavy upon my heart. I believe that this morning, God is about to do some miracles. I believe that there are some of you right here, right now, and you are trapped in the domain of darkness. Satan is hold you, holding you a slave, and it feels like depression. It feels like anxiety. It feels like inexplicable trouble inside your soul. You don't know why, but you can't seem to break out of it. It feels like right now he has you shackled. The enemy has you shackled and there's no way you can break free. You've tried so hard to overcome these temptations and these failures and this brokenness and you just can't seem to do it and you're starting to feel like maybe faith is not gonna work for you. And here's what I wanna tell you. I believe that today Jesus Christ is gonna break down the very gates of hell because he's coming to rescue you. I believe he is going over to the domain of darkness where you are and he sees you sitting in a corner and you think you're shackled, but there are no shackles on you. The enemy has just lied to you. And Jesus is coming with his hand to you saying, no longer do you need to be shackled. You come with me. I want to take you over to my kingdom of light. I want to give you life. Today can be your day of freedom. But you have to take his hand. You have to say, I don't, I don't need to believe in this darkness anymore. I don't need to think that Satan can control me. Because when I repent of my sins and I give myself to Jesus, he rescues me. And I never have to go back. But it requires you to say, Jesus, here. When you take his hand, you're giving every bit of yourself to him. There's no more important thing you could do than that. We have this baptistry up here. There's some warm water in it. We have t-shirts and shorts. Because there's some of you right now, today, who need to say, I, I want, today is my day to be dead up to myself and to be raised up in new life. I need to do that today. No more darkness. No more lies, no more control by the enemy. I want the victory of King Jesus. Power and victory, the ability to overcome all that the enemy's thrown at you is found only in Christ Jesus. Today could be the day. I want to ask you all to stand up, if you will, right now. I'm going to ask the prayer team to make their way around the room. If you don't mind spreading out around the room, you'll find some people who have lanyards on it that say prayer team. And those people are ready to pray for you. If you have a need, I'm inviting you to go to one of them in a moment to say, I'm no longer going to be afraid of what's going on in my life. I'm no longer going to assume that the enemy's got control. I'm going to fight back fear through prayer and let them pray for you. Or maybe, maybe like I said before, you're coming down going, I, I need to repent. I've let compromise come into my life. And I need to ask the Lord to forgive me. And I need to remind myself that he has power that he owns me, not the enemy. Maybe you just need to come in repentance and find healing and forgiveness. Steps will be open. But if today you're saying, I'm ready. I'm ready. I don't want to be in this darkness any longer. I want salvation. I want to be set free. I, I want Christ to take over. If you're ready to turn from your sins and trust in Christ, baptistry is waiting for you. You can take that step of faith. Let us know down front, and we'll make sure that you understand the decision, and we'll get everything ready for you today. But you need to let them know. Some of you may just need to worship in song. I don't know how you need to reply. But right now, whatever the Father's telling you to do through his spirit, you respond. We're waiting for you.